Hello, and welcome to Digital Catapult's Future Networks podcast. I'm Jeremy Silver, CEO of Digital Catapult. On today's episode, I'm joined by Peter Carney, who's our Head of Product Innovation at Digital Catapult, and he'll be my co-host. And our guest today is Greg Peak, who is Principal Applications Engineer from Texas Instruments. So continue listening as we explore smart city applications and discuss how future network technologies can create the connected factories and environments of the future. So just to begin with, Greg, would you like to just say a few words of introduction about yourself? How long have you worked at Texas Instruments? Yes, thank you for the introduction. I, I've worked at TI for 30 plus years now and uh, starting as a DSP engineer. So some of us would still remember DSP as the basis of how we got into the digital mobile networks of today. So I've been through all the phases of design, et cetera, from mobile phones and base stations and infrastructure, et cetera. Today, I'm, I'm working on applications on a European basis for millimeter wave and wireless connectivity. And of course, following the, the IoT growth and the smart sensor revolution. Excellent. Well, we're going to get into a little bit more about exactly what we mean by the Internet of Things and how it's growing and what we mean by smart sensors in just a minute. But we'll come back to that. Peter. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your role at Digital Catapult? Yep. So I joined the Catapult about five and a half years ago. Um, also background in telecoms, uh, many years at Vodafone, which of course no doubt will have used TI chips and infrastructure in their phones and base stations and that sort of thing. I've obviously got an interest in the Internet of Things, um, heading up a, a team who look at uh, lots of the Future Networks Labs application, everything from 5G at one end of the spectrum all the way through to low power networking. And of course, uh, lots of the millimeter wave sensors are appearing now in the the Internet of Things products and, and services that the companies are rolling out, both in terms of connected factories, but also in the, in the sense of uh, connected environments where we're likely to see uh, human beings and machines coming into contact with one another. So we've been hearing a lot for uh, at least 10 years about the Internet of Things, but it seems as if it's finally coming of age. Greg, what, what do you think of the factors that are making the Internet of Things become a reality today that has taken us a while to get here? Well, there's many things. Um, you just need to look at the challenges of uh, connectivity, for example, and the, the way that we have to design and build circuits, and that's what TI does, which are low power, low cost, and give you still a very strong capability of sending a, as much data as you need to. And then on the other hand, you've got the sensor side. Sensors that are useful in that they are sending valuable information with across secure networks. And then, of course, we've got the cloud connection as well, which is you know, where we do all the processing and then dissemination of information in order to take action on whatever that is. So all the technologies are converging at the moment. And uh, I would like to talk about the smart sensors today. Well, we'll, and that we'll is come a big and, part of that. We'll come on and talk some more about smart sensors in, in just a moment. But I just want to ask you, Peter, the nature of the networks themselves have evolved over the last 10 years as well, haven't they? What, what would you say are the key kind of enabling factors today that are making the Internet of Things a reality? 
Yeah, I mean, so of course, the Internet of Things is really all about adding utility and efficiency to the machines, devices, buildings, environments that we that we find ourselves living in and, and working with. So this requires a new form of, of network that hasn't existed up until now. So lots of the telecoms networks of the past were really optimized for transferring voice and, and large quantities of data. For the Internet of Things, that will need a, a new range of networks that have very low power. Lots of the devices that we'll, we'll put into buildings will be retrofit. They'll need to be battery powered. They'll need to last for many years. There's no point building an IoT device that flattens its battery after a couple of couple of weeks. These things need to last for many, many years. And as such, we'll need to build networks that, that are able to do so. On the 5G side, of course, there'll be all sorts of applications where we need the immediacy, the absolute instantaneous transfer of high, high quantities of data. So if we look at autonomous vehicles, for example, which will need to be controlled by road junctions or the infrastructure they find themselves on, for that you need a different sort of network, again, which the typical historical telecoms networks can't support, but, but 5G brings to bear. So, so if we were to sort of pick one problem, Greg, that, that TI has been, been focused on and, and deploying its smart sensors towards, is there a, a, a one really good use case that you could give us to, to, to make this more real for people? Yeah, I think the, the, the biggest problem we've had up to this point is, and this relates to the way that the populations are becoming denser and in urban areas, et cetera, is really about uh, people detection and people monitoring and looking at people flow. Up to this point, we've used optical camera type technologies, which have have issues with false detection or false positives, as well as privacy type issues. And I think um, now we want to understand the, the flow of how people move through cities, move through buildings, also not just from the movement point of view, but also from the safety and the loading point of view. Then um, we need to have, you know, kind of smart sensors, smart technology that's that's able to do that. And what kind of benefit would, would understanding those flows and that, that kind of traffic give us? Um, a number of things. It can, it can run from security applications where you're detecting people from some meters away, you know, something that you couldn't do with a camera, for example, to understanding whether somebody is left in a building that's on fire. Okay, so that's a very relevant uh, type news topic of today to also, even before you get to that point, is understanding how people are moving towards fire exits. If we talk just about the safety side of things within a building itself. And then there's the, the regular commercial type uh, needs of understanding footfall. You know, so how many people are walking towards a, a shop? How many people are going through the doors? How many people are standing in front of an advertising uh, screen? I mean, it, there's many, many applications which we can cover. And, and you mentioned earlier on the smart sensors as being a, a real key to, to getting this kind of insight. What, what is a smart sensor, actually? Yeah, there's, in fact, the smart sensor is not actually smart, okay? The, <laughs> the smartness of it is actually pre-programmed in that it's, let's say, a little bit more enabled and more capable type of sensor. It's able to process information at the edge where the sensing operation actually occurs versus having to send it to the cloud and then for it to come back again and provide some action behind. And that's where, you know, smart sensors, okay, we can call them smart for now, but they really involve having a lot of processing with the sensor to be able to provide metadata. And 
the metadata is kind of a filtered approach to refining the data. We don't want to send everything to the cloud. We don't, you know, if we're controlling an actuator somewhere, it only needs a single piece of information, normally an on or an off, right? So we need to extract that from the data. So most of our smart sensors these days really have more an integrated approach where they have more processing close to the front end. They should be low, low in power. They might even have some level of uh, computational intelligence. So we start to see some neural networking inside these sensors as well. They want to avoid, in some situations, latency. So you don't have the necessarily the ability to communicate all the data from a sensor to the cloud and back again. So you do the decision processing within the sensor itself, and you can make, make the action as quickly as possible. Just stepping back a moment, you talked about some examples in which uh, cities and overcrowding and, and growing urban populations were in need of, of, of more systems. Can you just tell us a bit more about the way that that's working? We, you know, we know that growing proportions of the world's population are moving into to living in cities and that the complexity of that is growing on an almost daily basis. Can you give us some, some other examples of where this kind of technology can really make that more viable and make that more acceptable to people? It even comes, um, you know, from the fact that we live closer together, we have less transportation needs, but the transport that we do have will be more congested, okay? So people will still need goods and services delivered, etc. Uh, so just purely even traffic management and, um, you know, smart, intelligent uh, traffic networks are still going to be needed even in, in these uh, very dense urban environments. It's a question about, you know, where, where our traffic goes, where, how our road systems evolve. Okay, are we going to be pushed more towards buses and trains, et cetera, or are people still going to own cars? So if you take the public transport side of things, so then you're starting to put, this is people flow and people transportation, you're starting to put people on, in carriages and on buses, et cetera. You increase actually the danger a little, not to scare people, but um, if we talk about terrorism, etc., in this world, then people leaving bags and objects on bus seats, etc., we need to be able to detect for that type of thing. And this, the millimeter wave sensor technology, is capable of doing that. So if somebody brings in something that wouldn't normally be in that environment, like a port, like a bag, like whatever then we're able to detect that that has been brought in, it's new to the environment, as well as the person that brought it in, okay? And the same goes for even just plain occupancy within a train carriage, to be able to measure. Today, you see that um, on the screens in some carriages, what the occupancy is within the train. But they can only measure based on uh, sensors that are in the seats. They can't measure the people standing up. Okay, so we need another technology. And again, this millimeter wave sensor technology allows us to do that. So um, for our listeners, I thought it'd be interesting to ask a question about, can you explain how it, the principles of millimeter wave technology, how does it work? And a second part to that question would be, obviously if you've got um, multiple objects which are kind of close, close by or at different distances but in line, what sort of resolution can you aim to achieve by this sort of technology? Okay. Essentially, this millimeter wave sensor technology is, is a radar technology, and 
Historically, most people would associate that to military or even speed detection, you know, uh, giving you a ticket in the post if you're, you're going too quickly. And it's based on reflection. Uh, with our millimeter wave sensors, any reflections that are coming back have certain properties. They have a range property, velocity, and depending on how many antennas you're using, angle as well. So you're very easily able to detect and position and locate a person within a certain space, a field of view of the, of the imager. The, the constraints typically are more to do with the physics of it versus the devices that, that we provide today and others provide today as well. So if we're looking at range and the ability to detect people at a certain range, then today we've got uh, software that's downloadable and free to use, if you like, that can detect people up to 50 meters and moving up to 100 meters. And often the, the challenge is not so much the detecting of the people, but removing the rest of the reflective surfaces that, that are there. And the way that radar works in this sense is that a human being is very reflective purely because of their water content. And they, a human also has specific characteristics in the way they move. So we don't move like an object moves. An object moves with all its points typically at the same velocity, whereas a human has different parts of the body, the limbs, etc., that are moving at different velocities. And we can, you know, we come back to neural networks, we can apply, you know, pattern recognition, if you like, uh, due to signatures of you know, what the radar is detecting. Um, just to come back to your, your second question, on you know the limitations and how you can determine whether there's two people there or one person there. We use a lot of kind of tracking mechanisms that you see today in GPS, like dead reckoning, prediction, etc. to say that I've established that I have an object, could be human, might, might not be, let's see the way it moves, let's see the way that it, it operates within my field of view, and let's track it and let's keep it as a track until it disappears from my field of view, such that any object that then comes into that space, I'm tracking. So if two people come very close together, they come into my field of view, I continue to track them until they leave the field of view, and they should always be two people. Mm. Now, if you were just to say, I'm just gonna do this based on radar and reflection, that wouldn't work. So there is a high level of intelligence, of programmation, and again, neural networks, prediction, a little bit of DSP in there that enables you to take radar, and pure radar physics, to the next step. And you'd aim to process a bunch of that on the chip, on the device, and then only send back essentially the result of that analysis to the cloud server, whatever it would be. Correct, yes. So the devices we have today, we're calling them smart sensors. But uh, the reality is that you know, we're doing most of the processing that you will ever need for people detection of almost any sort on the chip. So we have multiple cores on there that are able to do that, DSP accelerators, hardware accelerators, et cetera. And then uh, that does mean that I can say, point my radar into a room and say, how many, or ask the question, how many people are there and how fast are they moving? And I just get that information. I don't get the rest of the reflections, the objects, I just get what I need. And that can be a very little information, it can be like, you know, a number, like one to 10 people in the room, in which case, if I talk about an LP1 type system, which very low bit rates, then I'm able to transmit that across, across a city. 
very easily. What, what about what's happening in our factories and the, the use of this sort of technology there, where the fourth industrial revolution is talked about with great enthusiasm, but this is quite a specific uh, technology that's got some quite specific applications, I suspect. I mean, most factories are buildings, so anything we have to do with the building, uh, like the lighting, automatic lighting or automatic climate control, that applies to a factory as well. But then there are some specifics about factories. And a factory is somewhere where something is manufactured, so it can be your classic, you know, mechanical style of factory that we always imagine with the, the smoke coming out of the top, or it could be a farm. A farm is also a factory. It's manufacturing something. So if you look at a factory, the classic radar use, the classic millimeter wave use has been level sensing. And that's where you have you know, big vats full of liquids or solids, and you want to measure the volume within the vat. And up to this point, it's been 24 gigahertz uh, radar, and now moving over to 77 or 60 gigahertz radar. But there's a whole heap of other... What will that do, moving across to those, those, those levels? Will that increase the accuracy of what you can measure or the speed with which you can measure it? It can do both, um, depending on the implementation. But more so when you go to high frequencies, your dimensions uh, decrease. So it means you've got a, a smaller sensor, essentially. And then you can start to have uh, different technology innovations like antennas sitting on top of the package of the device itself versus them being external. It also means that uh, potentially you can have you know, different materials that you can transmit through with the different frequencies as well. So it has ramifications in different ways. So you mean, you, you mean that you could transmit the data through thicker walls inside a, uh, an, a hazardous environment or something well, of that you've kind? If you've got a smaller dimension, then potentially you can position the radar in a different way such that it can be closer to the material. You still have to worry about the material that any radar of any frequency is transmitting through. And of course, do, you know, does does millimeter wave? What sort of penetration capabilities does it have actually through different sort of thicknesses of walls or different sorts of materials? It depends on the the dielectric constant of the material. Basically, it, it depends upon the what the the dial the permittivity of. I mean, electromagnetic waves are they've got permeability and permittivity. Permittivity is the electrical part of an EMI wave, and that's the the part that can be absorbed by a conductive material. So if you look at the dielectric constant or um, the absorption of, for example, uh, steel or metal, there, there's virtually nothing that gets absorbed. It all gets reflected back, okay? But if you, if you look at um, certain materials, like transparent materials, maybe like glass, some of it gets reflected back, but some of it goes all the way through. If you look at non-absorbent, non-electrical conducting type material like plasterboard in a wall, most of it goes through. You don't get very much reflection coming back at all. So the important part of that, the sensor and, and being behind materials is how much dynamic range do you have in that sensor such that you can, uh, you can take some dBs away by being, there will always be some absorption in this material. And then of course, what the material is made of itself and the thickness of the material and more importantly the water content and the moisture within the material. So a dry wood is better than a wet wood, for example. And this is in the context of being able to essentially see through the wall? Correct. So in, in, in the context, of, obviously I can see in a, 
in a, a smart a city environment, emergency services would, would love this sort of thing. So if there's a fire somewhere, they can detect, is there someone present on the other side of the wall? Are they lying down? Are they standing up? But in the context of a, a factory environment, is that something that's also of use? And what are the kind of use cases there? Yeah, so in a factory, there's a number of different things. And the biggest use case today is about protecting people, as it is actually with, with a lot of even the city the city-wide type of use cases. So protecting people from, in a factory, dangerous objects, uh, moving objects, robots, AGVs, you know, number of different things. And what is prevalent today is, and, and is existing on the market today, is 24 gig uh, type sensors. And what these things do uh, are basically split an area around a dangerous machine into zones such that if you, if you walk towards the machine and you shouldn't maybe be there, you can approach it from the point of view that you'll go into a warning zone. It'll flash a light, tell you you shouldn't be here, or a siren even. And then if you get even closer into the red zone, again, you shouldn't be there, really shouldn't be there this time, then the machine may stop. We don't always want to walk through a light curtain in order that the machine stops unnecessarily. So we don't want any false detection. So radar with one single sensor gives you that ability and granularity of giving back a warning system. And that, that can be for um, a number of different pieces of equipment inside a factory where it's deemed to be a little bit dangerous. It can also be for you know, moving objects, moving vehicles within a factory. So for example, forklifts. Forklifts don't have a lot of visibility or maybe the operators are more focusing on what they're doing versus the people around them. And we're seeing a, a trend towards adding people detection for forklifts. So maybe when they're reversing and they operate quite quickly or even to the point that we have very distinct and accurate sensors on the forklifts such that when somebody is coming towards a piece of equipment, they can very quickly judge how far away they are because the visibility on that type of machine is not perfect for the driver. So are there, are there places where this technology didn't used to be able to be used, but because it's now become more sophisticated or the sensors have shrunk in size or they're more durable, that you're able to deploy them in, in new ways that we, that we haven't seen before? Yeah, I, I think it comes back to the point about being autonomous and having a lot of uh, processing capability on the chip in order to cope with different scenarios, being able to, to do longer distances, etc. Well, is that an onboard battery or is that going to, are they going to take power from the environment in some way? Today, a lot of them are powered from, let's say, traditional mains type of, of power. So, I mean, if we look at the detectors that you, you classically have within a, a building in a room, uh, that detector would be sitting kind of in the middle of the ceiling, in the middle of a light, perhaps, where there's already power. Okay. Similarly, for if it's on a, on a vehicle today, it's being powered, of course, from the 12 volts or 48 volts, whatever the, the vehicle is, is providing. We're not at the point today, we're focusing more on the functionality of putting the additional power modes in there such that it can run off a battery. But we do realize that um, even within a building and a factory, you have different protocols uh, that control the automation with, within the building structure. And it can be that they're bus powered protocols. So we have a, a number of ways that we're addressing that is, um, you know, it could be KNX or DALI or whatever, it's some, some bus protocols that also give you a power budget. 
And then you have to adjust the, the duty cycle and the way you're detecting things according to that budget, which is possible today, without necessarily needing you know, a lot of different power modes within the device. So what's, what, are, what are the new applications of this that are exciting you that are starting to be able to happen today that, that weren't a few years ago? Almost everything we touch. <laughs> uh, this technology actually is, um, apart from being very precise and accurate, it's very sensitive. So it's, it's much, much more sensitive than a PIR. So I, I'm sitting here, I can just move one little finger and the radar will de detect it. Versus you, we all have the experience of sitting in an office late at, late at night, maybe we shouldn't be there. Yeah, waving our arms around, trying to get the PIR to activate again. You won't have that effect with radar. Part of the, the movement towards millimeter wave versus centimeter wave, where we've been more traditionally with 24 gigahertz radar, is that the smaller the wavelength, we measure some of the movements um, by phase changes in those wavelengths. So you can imagine if we're detecting micrometers of a millimeter wave is going to be much easier than detecting micrometers of a centimeter wave. So we have greater possibility to detect very, very small movements and in fact be able to measure them as well. So in the instance of, um, for example, telehealth, so people staying at home or we want them to stay at home and you know, there's a lot of discussion even in these days about NHS but the principle is that you can monitor, some, monitor somebody unobtrusively that is in a private way in the way that they're, they're moving in the way that maybe they're not moving you can measure their vital signs so we can measure very small displacements in the chest to the point of down to 10 to 15 micrometers, which means we can measure heart rate and breathing from a distance. No, no connection, no attachment, and they can still be autonomous in, in their environment. They can be sleeping, we can still detect, or they could be standing or moving. And we, we can also detect if um, they fall. So everybody's got a, a kind of a signature. We know when they're standing. We can detect a point cloud. We can detect the height that they're standing at. We know when they're sitting. And then we will know also when they're, fall or they're, they're falling or on the ground. And, and the great advantage of this is that you can do this through data rather than through any observation. So that this notion of a sort of surveillance culture, you could actually get away from a bit by actually using this kind of technology. Correct. I mean, in, in two ways, really. One, it's unobtrusive and you don't necessarily know it's there. We can put it behind a wall, okay, and you really don't know it's there. And secondly, we can monitor areas where otherwise now you would not put a camera, like in a bathroom or in a toilet. As I mean. And that is the place actually where most people fall, so it kind of works out uh, quite nicely. And of course, because they don't rely on any sort of ambient light, there doesn't need to be light. So as you say, in the, in the situation where you're monitoring someone in the evening at night when the lights are out, then of course it'll still work, I assume. Correct, yes. It does. So are there deployments in care homes and in uh, residential environments at the moment, or is this a sort of direction that you see this going to in the future? I, I think it's more than, more than a direction people are working on. This is still 
this technology is roughly still in its infancy. I, you know, we have devices and products that are in production today and they're being used in certain areas, which we can touch on. For the medical side, whether it's in a hospital or in, in kind of t- telehealth application at home use, then there are still there are some things that we need to get through. You know, on the acceptance, the certification, the safety aspect, and we're we're knocking those blocks down as we go, but uh, it will come. One of the companies that we're working with as part of our Future Networks Things Connected program uh, have a project which is in Hereford to detect uh, falls in both uh, care homes but also in the home. Hereford has the um, has many great things about it. One of the one of the aspects of Hereford is that they have the, the largest proportion of elderly people um, compared to any other local authority in the UK, and of course that puts a huge burden on on the resources they have and, and the council taxes that they have to collect. Um, so one of the companies we're working with have produced this. Uh, falls detector uh, it can detect um, every, every type of fall in, in, a, in a care home there are different sorts of fall most of the falls are not the ones where someone falls hard and breaks a bone it's more of a slump or a slip but they can't get up and there's some statistics um, saying that if, if uh, someone's fallen over and they're not attended to within an hour within a year they'll, they'll die because they kind of give up hope and all this sort of thing and also there's some, some data around the fact that by the time someone's reported the fact they've fallen over They've started to fall many, many weeks or months before that. So this particular company use a low-power network to collect to transmit the data back. They use a radar millimeter wave type sensor to detect the fall. They use machine learning to understand how the behavior of the individuals changed. And then they can alert care workers, family members, the NHS to this sort of thing occurring. So we are really starting to see the application of this. And we've got that pilot running as we speak. So we've been hearing a lot about the way in which these sorts of sensors can work in a low-powered wide area network sort of context. But we've also been hearing a lot about the advent of 5G. How do you see the combination of uh, these smart sensors and 5G working? If we're talking about their coexistence from a, a spectrum point of view, then I know 5G is, is going to be covering a lot of the, the millimeter wave uh, bands as well, well, at least above 30 gigahertz. We expect it will we'll hit at least 40 gigahertz. But we're not sure, you know, from a spatial and from a range point of view, it's going to get to the 60 gigahertz mark. So the 60 gigahertz has some uh, special properties to that band. Uh, one is that it's ISM and that it can be used you know, by practically anybody. And the second property is that it's it's on the oxygen line, meaning that the moisture in the air, typical oxygen, will attenuate the signal quite significantly. And there's, there's numbers uh, that kind of dictate that you could be somewhere between minus 10 to minus 16 dB per kilometer attenuated at 60, at 60 gigahertz. Versus so what, would, what would the implications of that? The implications be? is that your signal to noise ratio is, is, is that much less, but that is also over a kilometer. Now, I, for 5G, I would expect they would want to get to a kilometer, and that could have some implication. Whereas for our radar and smart sensor millimeter wave devices, we don't need to get to a kilometer. In fact, uh, if we come down to 100 meters, then that number then comes down to 1.6 dB, which is noise. 
for us, really across our dynamic range. So they're not likely to interfere with each other, is what you're trying to say. Correct. Uh, but what about how they might work together? How might you take advantage of what 5G has to offer to enhance the capabilities of your own sensors? Well, I guess 5G is offering a number of things, and uh, it depends how you associate 5G with even the existing technologies like NBIT and LP1, etc. The ability to put sensors anywhere, just like any other sensor, and of course to be able to to um, send more data if you need to. I don't see other any other real benefit from a 5G specific to these sensors, except for the fact that um, it will be, let's say, more available. And if we need to communicate to the cloud, hopefully more reliable, because this is, this is part of the, the objective of having a smart sensor and everything inside, maybe locally, you can talk to your actuators, you can, you can stay local with all the processing decisions you need to make and not have to use 4G, 5G or any other type of communication. But if you need to, and it, this is the classic argument for a software programmable sensor is that you may need to upgrade the software at some point. So having very fast speed, very reliable and available type of networks around allow us to be able to keep that sensor up to speed in terms of its software, its security, its uh, any other firmware changes that are needed. So we've seen enormous changes and developments occurring then over the last 10 or 15 years from what people traditionally used to think of the use of radar to the way that you're talking about using it today. Where's it going to go in the next 10 to 15 years? Okay, <laughs> that's a good question. It's almost a question that uh, has been answered already five years ago, but we expect that uh, from a frequency point of view that we're heading towards the terahertz technology, which is kind of just below light. It's in this gap between RF and light, really. And that, that technology is, is very promising for a lot of things. So there's a lot of research about it. And these are taking smart sensors in this variety to a whole new domain and capability. So the ability, you know, we go through airports and security screens today. Some of them are actually using terahertz technology, but terahertz is able to to look at people and and their their bodies and what they're wearing and them whether they got metallic objects, but not just to say it's a metallic object, but to very clearly provide an outline and an imaging of that metallic object and maybe even the metal that it's made out of, you know. So there's there's a lot of different things coming that will improve from the real classification and identification of, you know, what what materials and objects are out there. So that's where we see it heading, apart from the normal thing of taking a very complex sensor and it being very low power and it being very efficient and very cost sensitive. Of course, that's the, n the normal evolution of where we're taking our millimeter wave sensors today. So I, I guess that's really quite key in the sense of as we have an ever increasing population with more and more demands on our cities, our infrastructure. So you're, you're packing more, more things and people into smaller spaces to understand what they're doing, where they've been, what they're made out of, whether they're going to collide with another. It becomes quite a, a key topic. And I guess uh, you'd see your sensors to be a, a major part of that. We would like to hope so, yes. <laughs> a much needed sensor in the future. So if uh, innovation businesses and manufacturers and, and even local authorities want to take advantage of some of these things that you've been talking about, what's the best way that they can um, do that and how should they move forward? 
Yeah, there's there's a few approaches, and and really, radar has been the domain of uh, industry experts for a long time now, and and there's a, quite a few out there that are migrating from the more traditional applications of radar, migrating from the old spectrum usage to this new industrial. And by the way, I didn't mention it, but um, the key driver for radar today is is of course the automotive market. Today, we're we're expecting probably in the next five years or more. And we're not, not just talking about autonomous vehicles, but also advanced driver assistance. So, you know, still having a driver. We're expecting probably cars to have between 15 to 20 radars in them, on them and inside them, okay? For different purposes, you know, vital signs, et cetera, et cetera. So I expect that the normal person on the street is, that's where their first experience of some of this radar technology is gonna be. And out of that business, um, there's a lot of people with a lot of know-how coming, whether it's consultancies or third parties or module manufacturers that are then moving to the industrial market. Because, you know, the automotive market has very similar types of restraints and very similar needs to what we see in industrial, even from the the hardware point of view. Uh, In the end, you've got a a particular sensor that's detecting range, velocity, and angle, right? It's the same in both markets. So we're starting to build ourselves uh, a large ecosystem of third parties that provide services, whether it's antenna design, module design, uh, software services, radar signal processing chain, number of different things. We don't see a lot. There are some of off-the-shelf products capable of doing different things today. But that's bound to grow and will grow in the next year or so. So it's there, there's a couple of ways that people can approach this. One is from the point of view of waiting and monitoring the market, or you can experience it for yourself today by going to, to ti.com slash IWR, looking at white papers, understanding how the applications can be applied, and, of course, buying a board, downloading some software, and seeing it run. Excellent. Thank you, Greg. And uh, Peter, last thoughts about the future of all this technology and where it's all going? Extraordinary use cases and range of use cases we've heard about. Well, I, mean, I think it's, it's an amazing technology. And to your question about where people can use it, also we have um, very kindly from TI some of your dev boards in our Future Networks Lab here in London. So, of course, um, companies and individuals wanting to have a play with that can give us a call and, and come and use it. I mean, I think the, the ability to, to see... In, um, in situations where you otherwise couldn't see. So I think, you know, health and safety, fire and rescue, it's going to be key. Lots of the, you know, the factories we have in the UK, they're, they're not all brand new. They have to be retrofitted with equipment and this sort of thing. We want to, of course, increase throughput through those factories. So the ability to accurately track where materials, machines, people are, are ultimately going to help boost the efficiencies of those factories. And I think that's, that's quite an important thing for the UK. Well, thank you for joining us this week. That's all for today's episode of Future Networks podcast. Thanks for listening. And thank you to Greg Peak from Texas Instruments for joining us today and Peter Carney uh, for sharing uh, your knowledge and your insights into the Future Networks technologies like IoT and, and, and millimeter wave and, and smart sensors. Join us again in the next podcast episode and make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to learn more about Digital Catapult and the work we do in the IoT and 5G space, visit our website at digicatapult.org.uk.